I wanted to begin by observing that one of the wildly unique features of the Christian church is that there are expressions of it found all over the world, right? Uh, the majority of Christians, they do not live here in the United States. Oh, that's a little bit better. Man, I just made myself scream at you there. Sorry about that. Uh, they actually live in China and in Africa. That's where the majority of Christians are right now. And even here in the United States, if you think about the church, right, you can only fairly describe it as a sort of multi-ethnic, multicultural, multilinguistic endeavor. And uh, I can tell that this little microphone right here is, well, let's just pitch it. What do we say? Let's try, let me hang on a second here. Comedy of errors, right? Ta-da! Okay, you can hear me now. All right. So the church is phenomenally good, right? The church is phenomenally good at adapting to other cultures in, in a way that you could fairly say no other religion is, even comes close to. Uh, at the same time, while the church is able to do this, right, while you can cross cultural barriers in order to grow, in order to expand, uh, it's also equally possible for the church to become so much like the culture around it that you can no longer tell the two apart. And there are stories. One such story uh, comes to us from the se around the 17th century, a place called Cave Valley, China. And these missionaries go there, they plant this church, they come back home, and after a couple years they decide, we're going to go back and visit and see uh, what, what, what's happening at this, at this church that we planted. Well, they get there, and they find that the people had equated God with Tian, which is kind of like the Chinese version, kind of Chinese thought related to heaven. Uh, they were worshiping Mary. They had equated Mary with this sort of like Chinese sort of Buddhist goddess of mercy named Guan Yin. And they were reading the Ten Commandments right next to Confucian scriptures. And when the missionaries tried to correct these practices, they, they shamed them. They said, well, you don't know what you're talking about. We're the real, we're the, we got the real thing here. And so they just went home. They <laughs> couldn't do anything else. And the missionaries just left. And it's easy to be like, okay, okay, that was a one-off, right? That was, I was over there, overseas, right? But we have our fail stories here, too, in the U.S., it's a shameful thing to say that one of the most recognizable hate groups in America goes by the name Westboro Baptist Church. If you know anything about this place, you know, you just have to look at it for about three seconds and you can see what has happened is that they have found a way they, they, in, to conform themselves to some very predictable patterns inside U.S. culture in the very same way that a church in Cave Valley, China, in the 17th century was able to conform to the patterns of their surrounding culture. In our deeply materialistic society, the church struggles to produce generous people who can divest themselves of their, research, of their resources in, in order to serve others. In, in our deeply racialized and segregated society, 
our church struggles to pattern our community in a way that is different from the racialized institutions around us. In our deeply politicized society, our church struggles to, struggles to be different from the, the language and the behaviors, especially of certain hyper-conservative uh, politicians and policies in our midst. You know, I'm sure you've heard it said that you can boil a frog in water if you just turn up the temperature slowly enough. And in the same way, given enough time, the surrounding culture can kill a church, and it can do so very efficiently. All it needs is a little time. You know, we've all seen examples, right, of people, certain even Christians, who will go out and they'll engage in the culture wars. And the story that they're telling themselves is, we're advancing the gospel. We are being a part of our mission. And yet when I see that, all I can see is a church that is being boiled alive. It is a church that is being boiled alive by the surrounding culture. So the question that I'm putting before us all this morning is this. What will empower us to live faithfully in our culture and yet not be consumed by it? How are we going to live in the culture that God has placed us and yet be different from it? Basically, what I'm asking is, what are we going to do so that we don't get boiled alive? That is the question. And to approach this question, I want to begin by considering what is happening in the book of Acts. And the first way I want to consider what's happening in the book of Acts is to talk about Acts volume 1, which is basically the gospel of Luke. In the gospel of Luke, Jesus comes on the scene. He starts his public ministry. He stands up in front of a crowd, maybe not unlike this, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. That's how he starts his public ministry. He says, I'm going to preach the good news, the Spirit is upon me, and I'm going to care for the poor. This is very interesting because we can see some things that track very closely to this and what we've already seen so far in the book of Acts, right? One of the first things we read is that Jesus tells these early disciples, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, till the ends of the earth. And then what happens in Acts chapter 2? Well, the Holy Spirit shows up. And all of a sudden, these people are filled with the Holy Spirit, and this being a witness for Jesus becomes this full-blown movement. And then, chapter 4, we covered this a few weeks ago, uh, we read, There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold it and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So, the early church ministry is patterned exactly after Jesus' public ministry. Do you see this? They preach the gospel, filled with the Holy Spirit, and they care for the poor. Why in the world would the author of Acts want to alert us to these similarities? It's because Jesus has not left his church, despite what everyone thinks, right? He's just died, and now he's back from the dead, so he must be out there. But no. No, what you see in Acts is that Jesus is very, very much present with his church. In fact, he's maybe more present with his church now 
than he ever has been before. So even though Jesus is present with this church in Acts, in chapter 6, they're going to face a challenge that they've never seen before. And it's a challenge from their surrounding culture. So look with me, if you will, Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Thank you for, Matt, for putting these verses up because I'm just going to confess right now, I totally forgot about this. <laughs> so if you don't have a Bible, it's right here. You can just follow along there. It says this, uh, verse 1. Now, in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So these Hellenists, they were Greek-speaking Jews, but so far they have not been mentioned by Luke in the book of Acts. These people, they're somehow different. They're somehow different from the rest of the people in the early church. Maybe they only spoke Greek. Maybe they were not native-born Jews to the region. Maybe they were not ethnic Jews, right? And if you know anything about the Jews, there was always a Jew among the Jews who was not Jewish enough. So whatever made these people distinct, it was something that the early church could recognize, right? They said, these people are distinct. They're distinct and they have a large number of widows. You know, being a widow in antiquity was a terrifying proposition. You were a very vulnerable person if you were a widow in antiquity, right? This is a society run by men. So if in a society run by men, if your husband dies, you better hope that you have a son that can take care of you because without that, there is no government assistance to apply for. There are no group homes to flee to. And most importantly, there are no food stamps Despite all this, the Jews actually had this tradition, this long tradition of caring for the widows, right? This was actually a known problem at the time. They had this large number of widows in, uh, in this region around this time. It was this known social problem. So they had this known social problem, and the Jews had this tradition of taking care of the widows. So knowing all that, right, it's at least a little bit curious. Perhaps it's more than a little bit curious that these widows, identified as Hellenists, they're part of this early church where uh, supposedly there was not a needy person among them, and they're being neglected. They're not getting enough food. What exactly is the problem here? Are, are, they, are these Hellenists, are they not Jewish enough to be a part of this church? Is that what's going on? Was, was it that the problems of the widows in the larger society was just going to become the problem inside of the, the church? The looming threat here in Acts chapter 6 is about whether the church can remain faithful in their culture without being consumed by it. These guys face being boiled alive too. But, and it's a big but, you wouldn't know that because I'm skinny, but I have a big but. The presence of God is in this church. It's so clear when you read the book of Acts, the presence of God is with them. And if Jesus is present in this church, as he in, 
is present here with us right now at Grace and Peace, this moment, then we can pattern our response as a church to how we're going to face the cultural pressures and the cultural challenges around us based on how they did it in Acts. So how'd they do it in Acts? Well, the first thing that they do is they, they gather the whole assembly, right? So look on with me. Verse 2 says, uh, the 12, so the 12 apostles, they summoned the full number of the disciples. Okay, not every person in this church was a Hellenist. Certainly not every person in this church was a widow, right? There were probably people here who didn't even know that they had a problem. And yet they pulled everybody together as the first step. Right now, if I took off after service, went to the mountains, came back in a week, and was like, hey guys, guess what? I've got a solution to the problems in our church. I think I could hear the eye rolling that would take place. I think it would be audible in my ears. It's ridiculous, right, to think that somebody could do that. Look, not everyone has to agree on all things related to an issue, but everyone has to be able to at least say, okay, there is a thing here. We can at least agree on the broad strokes that we have a problem and agree that we should be doing something about it, right? So once you do that, right, if Jesus is in your church, you can do this. You can pull everyone together. You can summon the whole assembly. You can say, we have a problem. And once you've done that, you can do the next thing, right? You can frame the problem. What exactly is the problem? What do we face here, right? The apostles have a very interesting way of how they frame the problem here, and it's in verse 2. It says this. They tell everyone, they get everyone together, and they say, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Okay, I, at this point, somebody is probably conjuring up this image of a pastor who, like, loves his studies, he loves his books, he loves to read, he's really good at all those things, and he has absolutely no energy for other people's problems. Okay? That is not what is happening here in Acts. Okay? Let's not forget, just a few years ago, when these guys thought about the phrase, the word of God, they were thinking about the Torah. They were thinking about Hebrew scriptures, right? But now, right, it is very clear, very clear that the word of God includes the testimony, the witness to the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what they're talking about. Let's not forget here, <laughs> okay? No one's going to, no one's putting themselves at risk by feeding widows. That is not a risky thing to do, okay? But preaching the word of God, that was going to get them killed. It almost already did. These guys have been arrested for doing this already. There are people that are seeking their lives, okay? And frankly, one of these guys who shows up on our passage today, Stephen, he does get killed for doing this just a few verses away. So that's, th this is a real risk here that they face, okay? The apostles in no way are retreating to, like, the safety of their studies here, okay? That's not what's happening. But they also don't go to a bunch of widows and say, oh, you're hungry, huh? You know, that sounds more like a you problem than a me problem. They don't do that either. Instead, these apostles, they, they reframe the human needs before the church as a gospel 
problem, a gospel issue. And friends, I just got to say, we as a church, if we fail to meet the real human needs in our midst, we as a church will lose all credibility to continue preaching the gospel. That's what happens. In a community with the special privilege and the special responsibility to preach the gospel, where there was not a needy person among them, the apostles come along and they essentially draw a line in the sand and they say, this is it. This is what will make us distinct. We cannot sacrifice the gospel, but we also cannot fail to meet these needs. And we basically are going to do the same thing. That's what we endeavor to do. Our church has been entrusted with the very same gospel that they were. It's no different. Throughout history, across the globe, the church has always been at its best when it has done these two things. When it has preached the gospel and when it has served the needs of the church in its own community. This is doable. This is very, very doable. If Jesus is in our church, we can involve the whole community, right? We can reframe the problems in the church as gospel problems. Third, we can create criteria for church service leadership to address these problems. This is what they do. Verses 3 and 4, it says, The apostles pick, they say, Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. That is the duty of care of feeding for the Hellenistic widows. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. It's a little hard to see in here. This this is actually the first instance in the Bible of the church electing deacons. The the word uh, diakonia, it's, it's the Greek word for deacon, actually appears three times in this little section right here. What are the qualifications for church service leadership? Well, it says right here, right? They should be people of good repute, full of the spirit, and full of wisdom. But also look at verse 5. Look at who they choose for this task, right? It says they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. That's good. That's what they said the qualifications were, so they're on the right track. And Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. I could just tell that was an enthralling experience for all of you right there. I could see it's written in your face. You know, I think people come to church for a lot of reasons, right? But I think the main reason they come is for the public reading of weird names. <laughs> we just love that. I mean, that's going to be the newest TikTok thing, right? The public weirding, readings of weird biblical names, right? Look, uh, a list of names can tell you a lot, okay? If you came up to me and you said, hey, Jason, who'd you start on your fantasy football team this year? I would give you a list of names. I would say, well, I had Dak Prescott, Austin Eckler, Devontae Adams, and Amari Cooper. That had almost the exact same effect as reading the first list of names. That was incredible. Most of you guys are like, wow, that's great. That means nothing to me. Okay, which is fine. However, to the trained ear of a football fan, you know what you just heard? You heard Jason just lost his fantasy football season. <laughs> I went six and eight, friends. Helps if you log in on the bye weeks. Just word to the wise. I did not. In the same way, okay, 
to the trained ear of the first century reader, when they heard this list of names, when they heard who was going to be solving the problem of the Hellenistic widows, when they heard this, they heard that the people who will serve the needs of the widows, they all have Greek names. Nicholas, one of these guys, he wasn't even a native Jew to the territory, right? He was clearly a transplant. He's from Antioch. These people were almost certainly chosen in part because of their proximity to the very people whom they are being appointed to serve. The church here is sending out a signal. They're saying that being Jewish enough is not going to put you first in line to get your needs met around here. And at the same time, they're saying being Jewish enough is not going to be a criteria for leadership. We too should do this. We should appoint leaders who are of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, but also those with the relevant cultural savvy and experience. We should take a hint here from this early church, right? The people with the closest proximity to the problems usually come up with the best solutions. Friends, if, if Jesus is in our church, we can involve the whole community. We can reframe our needs and our real human problems as gospel problems. We can create criteria for effective leadership in this context. And once we've done all that, there's only one thing left to do. Appoint the leaders. That's what they did, right? Verse 6 says, These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Guys, we, we actually did this. Just last fall, Grace and Peace elected men and women of good repute, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom, and we called them deacons. And now, we all look just a little less crazier for doing it. We have excellent, excellent deacons here. Really, really great deacons. Gail is right in front of me. I cannot let her go unrecognized. Nick, who's not here, Nick actually is the deacon who needs a deacon right now because he's still, you know, looking for some support. But, and then my wife, who is another deaconess, she's out serving <laughs> the kids right now and not to go unnoticed. She's hoping that she will hide. But Carolyn Kanicki also is great. We have wonderful, wonderful deacons here. If you are in need, please come and find me so that I can introduce you to one of these deacons, okay? Also, it's just worth saying here, look, th there's no shame in recognizing our limits here, okay? The early church, they did not solve the problem of the, they didn't solve the, the Palestinian widow crisis in the greater society. Okay? <laughs> That's not what they did, right? Likewise, our little church isn't going to solve all the problems in the grander society around us, okay? But, and here's another big but. Let me tell you what it's like to be in a church that does have great deacons, okay? I'm going to throw another name out there since the list of names are just going so well here this morning. Dikimbe Matumbo. Anybody know that name? Of course, Matt knows that name. He's the basketball guy, right? I know nothing about basketball, so this is like the sum total of all my basketball knowledge right here. So you can fact check me against Matt later. Dikembe Mutombo, the reason I know about Dikembe Mutombo is because I grew up in Denver and he played for the Nuggets. 
So I, I know this about him, okay? I looked this up because I don't know enough about basketball to have this on hand. Um, over his career, Dikembe Mutombo blocked 3,289 shots, okay? Second most in NBA history, okay? And he became known for this move that he would do when blocking a shot. Anybody ever seen this right here? Few people, you don't know Dikembe Mutombo, but you might know this. What does this mean? Not in my house. That's right. That's what this is. After a while, right, Dikembe Mutombo wouldn't say it anymore. He would just go like this, right? When you have a social issue in your context as a church, the deacons are there to say, hey, wait a second. Poverty? Not in my house. Homelessness? Not in my house. Hunger? Not in my house. And here at Grace and Peace, we literally have four Dikembe Mutombos playing on our team. It's truly a privilege. It's really, really great. What this does, and what our deacons do for us, is they keep us distinct. They keep us distinct so that when we as a church share the message of the gospel, people who have no experience with the Christian faith and no understanding of us and zero understanding of the Bible, they will look at us and they say, not only is that what they're doing incredible, but it's attractive. I want to be a part of a community like that. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? So as we wrap up here, I just have one more question. As we do this, what can we expect? Right? If we go about modeling our church after the pattern that we see here in Acts, what's going to happen? Verse 5, after the apostles gather out the whole assembly, they propose their plan. It says this, what they said pleased the whole gathering. I love that. If, if you're new to Grace and Peace, one of the sort of quasi-inside jokes around here is we say, Grace and Peace, we are no one's favorite church. And what we mean by that is that we, we want to make space for people who disagree. We want to have space for people who think differently than one another to be a part of the same community, okay? But let's never frame that in such a way that says that we can't do anything by which we could all be pleased. Look next at verse 7. It says, The word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Luke wants us to see that the effects of the early church at meeting the, Hel the Hellenistic widow problem extended way beyond just a few widows being less hungry, okay? It extended to the church's growth. It extended to the church's reputation. They did so well at this that it says even the priests were coming to faith. That's crazy. That's the last thing they expected. The priests were trying to kill them. And yet, they did such a good job of meeting this problem that the priests were going, we want to get in here too. That's crazy. That'd be like people killing us, and then they're like, actually, can we join you? would be like, can they do that? Yeah, they could do that, right? Like the church in Acts 6, 
and the church throughout history, right? We are always going to face problems, challenges, even serious threats from the culture around us. But in a way, right, isn't it kind of comforting to know that we will not be the first church to face this? I think it's incredibly comforting to know that <laughs> there was many, many churches that have gone before us, even the very first one, dealt with the same pressure. We have cultural problems as a church that this first century church, they couldn't even dream of, right? Things like, how much internet news is healthy for a Christian to consume? They weren't thinking about that problem. Or what about, how should the church behave in a democratic society? Can't ask it unless you have a democracy. Or what about this? How will we address mental health issues? It's a big Twinkie. Or how are we going to expel racism from our midst without getting Matt posted back on woke pastors again? How are we going to do that? Matt loves that joke. I can tell. He's just like, he, that's his favorite thing. He's like, Jason's not invited back ever. That's what he's thinking right now. <laughs> Friends, despite our differences, we have something incredibly common with this first church. Just as the presence of Jesus was with them, the presence of Jesus is with us. And that should be a great encouragement to us. Because Jesus is the heart of our church, we're not going to get boiled alive by the culture. We don't have to live in fear. We don't have to respond in fear. We can work together to remain faithful and distinct from the culture around us. We can do this. We can meet human needs in our midst in a way that gives credibility to our gospel and that makes outsiders want to believe it. We can develop leaders specifically for this task. And frankly, we can support the leaders that we have already ordained to this task. And because Jesus is the heart of the church, we can expect that the gospel will go forth from us and change not only us, but change our world, change the culture in which we live. That is good news. Amen.